Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. From getting too comfortable when times are good, to letting issues remain under the surface, to not investing in innovation, there are a lot of things that can bit by bit lead a business from prosperity into irrelevance. Our guest today, an experienced manufacturing CEO and author, is here to break down what he calls the eight silent business killers. Let me introduce him. Steve Blue is president and CEO of Miller Ingenuity, an international manufacturer of high technology products that save lives and preserve the environment. Steve has published five books that teach senior leaders and CEOs how to increase profit, take market share, and beat your competition. His third book was co-authored by Jack Canfield and was an immediate bestseller. Steve's most recent book, Metamorphosis, From Rust Belt to High Technology in a 21st Century World, details exactly how any low-technology company can enter the world of high-technology and high-profit products. Steve created and authored the League of Extraordinary CEO series, a monthly CEO advice column in the American City Business Journals. Steve serves as CEO in residence at Winona State University. He holds a BS degree from the State University of New York and an MBA from Regis University. Steve, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, it's great to have you. And I would imagine maybe some of our listeners, this is not the first time they're hearing from you. I know you're a regular on on a variety of podcasts and your content's out there in book form and written form all over the place. So yeah, it's great to have you here and share some of your insights directly with, with my audience. My pleasure to be here. Well, Steve, I'd love for you to kick things off by just telling a little bit of your backstory of what led you to where you are now as president of Miller. I know you've got an interesting you know, road that you took to get here and yeah, we'll open it up and share it with our audience. Yeah, you know, I, I get asked that the question a lot about how, how did you become a CEO? Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's a long answer. It's not an easy answer. It's not a straight line. It's not, it's not you know, uncomplicated. It's pretty complex. But I tell people, well, when I when I start to tell them how I became a CEO, I, I have to go back to kind of my my roots, my early years. I, I was born into a blue collar family. My mother was a waitress, and my father was a truck driver. And we, you know, we didn't have much money. We didn't have much of anything really. And so when I graduated from high school, my parents couldn't afford to send me to college, and I didn't have any money to do it myself. So I joined the Navy instead, and I spent four years in the Navy during the Vietnam era. I wasn't in Vietnam, but during that period of time, and I started taking college credit courses in what's called the United States Armed Forces Institute, which is sort of like the military's answer to college. And so that's how I started working on a long, long journey to get my degree, and I actually never got my bachelor's degree until I was 40, because... 
again, when I got out of the Navy, I couldn't afford to do it. So I had to find an employer that was willing to pay for it. And so I went to night school. I was working full time and I, and I actually didn't get my MBA until I was 52. And the interesting thing about that journey, Joe, and I tell people this all the time is, you know, I, I as I grew up and as I understood business, I, I got to see it from both sides at the same time, the academia side and the actual real world practical side. And that had a, a great impact on, on shaping me. And, and I think it's better, you know, there, there is no right path, you know, academia or business, you know, but if you do it sort of together, you're sitting in the class and the professor's gone, whatever he's gone, you go, eh, not really. Or the professor is saying something, you go, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. And when I teach classes as the CEO and residents of Winona State, it's it's a lot of credibility I bring. And typically the, the professor that's in there and I'm like kind of a visiting guy shaking his head like this and looking around like, yeah, yeah, I've been telling you guys that all along. So I tend to add more credibility to the professors when I'm in the classroom. And I don't remember exactly when I decided I wanted to be an author. Uh, it's probably a good 20 years ago. And I remember, Joe, I was sitting in my family room with my laptop typing away at stuff. And my wife says, what are you working on? And I said, I'm working on writing a book. She goes, you don't know anything about writing a book. Okay, thanks, honey. And so that's, I sort of got my start in the beginning. And it was like, a, it was like a, a labor of love. I wanted to express what I had learned and what I knew. And so the first book wasn't that good. Honestly, it was a self-published book and it was, it was, it was fine, but it was the way to get started in, in authorship, if you will. And then it's funny because I've done five of them now. One of them with a major publishing house, the other four with self-publishing. As I look at the covers of the five over time, and I look at the quality of the book over the time, the quality of the writing over time, it's really gotten, gotten a lot better. Thank God or no one would ever buy it. And then I, as I was writing these books, I thought, you know what? I could be a professional speaker too. I know things and I could talk about things. And so I started into professional speaking in the usual way you know, KFC halls, you know, VFW places, anybody had to let me talk and didn't want to pay me, I would do it. And then over the years, through a variety of professional training and experience, I honed my craft to the point where the keynote speeches I do these days are at Carnegie Hall, at Harvard Business School, and just recently at the United Nations. So it's been a pretty interesting and productive way to further my professional speaking career. And as you said, I, I teach CEOs through a variety of methods, podcasts, books, professional speaking. Every now and again, I'll consult with them, but I, you know, I, I don't do a lot of that. And that's kind of my 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 story. Yeah, well, I love hearing it. And I think it's really cool how you've you've also just embraced different media over over time. I mean, I watched this podcasting medium just exploding the last few years. It's been fun to be a part of that. But yeah, I applaud you for all, all you've done and probably all the people you helped along the way. So thank you. Well, Steve, I'm excited to dive into a few areas of passion for you today, from leadership to culture to innovation. And I was reading an article you wrote, which I, I just learned from you. You wrote many, many years ago. And and looking through the principles, I think a lot of them are very timeless. And I, I'd love to, but the article is titled Seven Silent Business Killers. And I thought we could maybe use that as a framework for, for our discussion here. Did a nice job pulling a variety of themes together in that article. So what do you say we get into that and maybe kind of break them down one by one? Sure. 
Awesome. Well, I've got it up in front of me. I don't know. You probably have to have this half memorized at this point from all the times you, you've talked about these things, but you want to start at the top or where do you yeah. want to go first? Yeah, you know, top's fine. These are not necessarily in any order of importance. Yeah. They're all important. And then actually beginning this year, I've added an eighth. And if we have time, I can talk to, which is even more insidious and more dangerous and more destructive than the first seven. Well, let's, but, go, let's, uh, let's make it eight then. I think that's great. Yeah, let's, let's make it eight because yeah. it's really it's really kind of timely. The first one is what I call life is great. I got to tell you, Joe, I have sat back and thought to myself, oh, man, I got the CEO thing down right. I could do this in my sleep. No big deal. Probably I think I'll go out and golf. Something goes wrong. It just does. And since then, since I've learned that, whenever I start feeling that way, I, I start digging into what am I missing here? I must be missing something. Go find it because it's there. But many CEOs, in fact, I think it was my third book, the one that I had, the Prager Imprint, the publishing house, I wanted to title the book Fat, Dumb, and Happy CEOs. Well, the publisher didn't like that, and he did something else, called it American Manufacturing 2.0, whatever. But the But the theme was... CEOs can tend to be fat, dumb, and happy. And because they think everything's fine, they just sit around, they, you know, they belong to the club, they hang out with their other CEOs and they're kind of in, a, in an echo chamber, listening to each other and listening to their subordinates. And the dynamics of listening to, you need to listen to your subordinates, but the dynamics are such, unless you really have a lot of trust and a lot of rapport with your subordinates, they aren't going to tell you that there's anything wrong. And if you're sitting in your star chamber, you know, just sort of like having a monthly report, maybe hearing something every now and again, uh, you're going to miss the important signs that the things are, are, are deteriorating in the business. Because the dynamics are such, and this is another point I'll make in a minute, the dynamics are such as everybody wants the CEO to be happy. And so they don't want to upset the guy or the, the woman. And so they won't tell them anything that might upset them. And they might say, you know, it's like peripheral. They'll go, well, you know, sort of margins like deteriorated a little bit this month. And the translation of that would be they went to hell in a handbasket. And I don't want to tell the boss that they did. So my point of that is, especially in a CEO job, it's very easy to think things, every, everything's fine. Because people want you to believe everything's fine so that it, so they don't get in trouble. So my advice is anytime you think everything is terrific, start digging in, find out what you're missing, ask questions, give people permission to tell you the truth. They, they ought to have permission all the time, but think to yourself, okay, where is it? And what am I missing? And keep digging until you find it. That, that's great advice. I I love that. And honestly, I, you know, I, I'm a co-owner of a 23 person company. We're not a huge organization, but I I've seen signs of that, or there have been times where I've, I've kind of felt that way. And, and I think, for that reason, I, I try to make sure I am in, actively engaged with the people underneath me and, you know, asking questions and trying to figure out what's going on. But I certainly things slip by me and surprises hit me where it's like, well, where, where did this come from? And really, the signs were probably there. You know? And they, they, no matter how diligent you are, they always will. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. The, the degree of it. Yeah, yeah. That you got to be careful of. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, what's what's the number two on the list? Steve? I'll tell you what, you know, whenever everybody makes nice in meetings, mm. and of course, you know, my company's in Minnesota, you've probably heard of Minnesota Nice. 
So people sit around, right, especially in Minnesota. Nobody wants to be contentious in Minnesota. And this is everywhere, but mostly in Minnesota. Excuse me. Nobody wants to acknowledge conflict. And so everybody wants to sit around in meetings. Yeah, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm, Yeah, got that. Okay. And one of my favorite phrases that I hate is when people say, and you've seen this, let's take it offline. That usually means we don't want the boss to know about this, right? You know, let's just, so let's just take it offline, which means they won't take it off at all. They'll, they would just won't deal with it at all because they don't want to. And when people are sitting around in a, in a meeting consistently agreeing on everything and nodding their heads to everything, there's something wrong. There is just something wrong with that because in, in the complex world, business world we live in, things can't ever be that agreeable. <laughs> they just can't. There's got to be issues. There's got to be problems, et cetera, et cetera. And and it's your job as a CEO to go dig it out, find out where it is. In fact, this this leads to another point. It's not one of the seven necessarily. Is you know people believe generally that conflict in an organization is a bad thing, and that's why they avoid it at all at all costs because they think it's a bad thing. I say it's it's a very good thing, and it's a necessary thing as long as you manage it productively. And I was doing a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I said, I said, you know, you got to have conflict. Go, you saying everybody ought to argue with each other and hate each other and throw punches at each other? No, no, no. I'm saying you need to bring out the conflict, and then there are professional ways to manage conflict, and that that skill can be learned and can be taught to your to your team, which I've done. But it's really important. But if you're only making nice and meetings, you're not going to bring out the conflict that really does occur in the organization. I'll give you an example. One, I, I did a keynote speech. Actually, it was a custom speech. I, I don't like to do custom speeches because they take a long time. For a major medical device manufacturer just a few months ago, and they wanted me to dig into problems with similar companies where they lost their quality and they lost their critical focus. One of the examples I used was Boeing and the 737 MAX. Another example I used was NASA and the Challenger disaster, right? Well, there was plenty of conflict to go around in both those organizations that should have produced a warning signal and and solutions to both of those issues, but it didn't because it was suppressed conflict. It was buried conflict. It was political conflict shoved off to the side. So, And if those, those conflicts had been managed productively, those disasters would never have occurred. So I think when people are sitting around your meeting making nice it's time to say, oh, hold on, guys. I remember once years ago with a new team I had, I said, okay, guys, let's just stop this meeting right now because this is can't be. You guys can't be that happy with each other. And, okay, so where is it? And then I'd sort of needle them until they said, well, yeah, maybe there is a conflict here. And after a while, that when they knew it's not only okay by me to have conflict, but I actually expect it, then it becomes much more productive. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I don't know, Steve, if you're familiar with like EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System, or the book Traction. Mm-hmm. A, lot, you know, a lot of manufacturing organizations run on it. We do at Gorilla, but our our implementer, the, the consultant we use to help us run this operating system for our business, and we have annual meetings and a big, you know, or, or quarterly meetings, a big annual meeting. But our another Minnesota guy, Rob Tracy, he wrote a book called How to Fix a Factory. But anyway, Rob Rob implements for us, and one of the things he always reminds us at the beginning of every quarterly meeting is 
for this to be productive, we have to be open and we have to be honest. And I think that that's, that's so key because you need to bring issues to the table. And then in our weekly meetings that we do as a leadership team, we spend 75 out of the 90 minutes every single Tuesday morning doing what we call IDSing, which is identify, discuss, and solve. And we bring the biggest issues to the table. And again, it's you have to be open and honest. You have to be talking about what's mm-hmm. the problem at hand here. Where, where are the causes of it? Even if it's going to offend somebody or hurt somebody's feelings, there is a way to talk about it in a productive, respectful way. But you have to bring those things to the table or problems are never going to get solved. And they're going to become big issues under the surface before you know it that's exactly right because they everything starts small and everything gets yeah. big if it's not attended to yeah yeah absolutely well steve what's we've covered two here two silent business killers here out of eight what's number three well number three is what i call what i wrote at the time innovation is dead on arrival in your company now some companies are are naturally inclined to innovate microsoft apple High technology companies, you know, they sort of do this, but manufacturing companies, many of them are innovative, but many of them don't think they need innovation. And and everybody does because you're you're on a going out of business curve. I know this. I don't know anything about your business and I know you are. I'm on a going out of business curve and every manufacturer out there is. It's just simply a matter of time and product, you know, lines and, and, and so forth. So you always have to have something new in the pipeline. Of course, you know, that that's difficult and it's it's expensive because, you know, when you're spending money on innovation, R&D, whatever, you're not spending it on marketing, you're not providing airholder distributions, all kinds of things that you could use that money for. And so people tend to look at any expenditure toward, I wouldn't call it the, the research side of R&D, but the longer cycle time development, things that might not uh, kick in for two to two to five years. And while you have your profitability and the other product lines, you obviously have to do that, but many companies aren't. And even my own company, not that many years ago, my, my own company used to be very innovative about 40 years ago. And I've been running for about 25. And so the, all that innovation had been running out of steam. Patents were expiring, and I just looked at that, and I, I I don't have to be a rocket scientist to know where this is going to go. So what I advise CEOs all the time is start a formal and fund a formal process of innovation. And I'll tell you how I started. I decided we needed to be more innovative as a company, not just the engineers, that that's sort of their job, but it's like everybody's job. Process innovation, you know, production innovation and so forth. So I, this was really weird, Joe. I hired the who, the guy who used to be the chief creativity officer for the QVC network. Are you familiar with them? Yeah. Well, when yeah I'm in, I am. I can't say I'm much of a watcher, but I'm, I'm familiar. <laughs> I know. So when I'm in a room and, and giving a keynote speech and I say, every, raise your hand if you're familiar with that. And if there's a lot of men in the room, there are very few hands up. If there's a lot of women in the room, a lot of hands up. Okay, fine. Yeah. Well, the QVC network is, I don't know, there's eight, nine billion now in sales. I mean, it's its ungodly massive. And you wouldn't know that if you didn't have some inside baseball. So the guy that was used to be the creativity officer, he started with them when they were like 60 million, 70 million. When he left to go on his own, they're like 2 billion. Okay, now he wasn't responsible for all of that, but he was responsible for a lot of it. So I hired him to teach every single employee in my company the principles of innovation from the ground up, beginning with brainstorm, right? 
And so not, not just the white collar, but the blue collar as well. And so he, he spent the better part of a year with us coming back every two or three weeks that you're doing simulation with them, having them practice. And, and about a year after that process, they started doing it on their own. It took flight. And of course, we said, you know, we want everyone to be accountable and interested in innovation. So we're going to give you the time and we're going to give you the space to do that. Because uh, at first they would do it, you know, after a while, we'd say, here's what we want you to work on. And here's the people you work on it with. About a year into the process, they started doing that all by themselves picking who the, the problem they wanted to work on or the opportunity and the people they wanted to work on it with. So one, one day a guy comes up to me in the factory and he said, you know, we really like this innovation stuff. We could do it better if we had a dedicated space where we could do it. And I said, let me make sure I understand this. You want me to take space in my factory that actually makes money and turn it into a think tank. About now he's wishing he hadn't opened his mouth. And I said, I love it. So I spent a half a million dollars building what the, what the employees call the creation station. And it's a very high tech space, conducive to thought and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people criticize me. They say, you know, what's the payback on that half a million dollars? Let me tell you something. CEOs, including me, don't bat an eyelash about paying a half a million dollars for a CNC machine. Why? Because it's an income producing asset. Well, so is my creation station. The difference between the two assets is that CNC machine depreciates every single year. My creation station appreciates every single year. So my advice to CEOs is make it a job requirement, make it all hands, give them the training tools and permission and space they need to do it. And that way your company won't be dead from lack of innovation. Love that. Well, Steve, what's what's number four? We got three oh, down. What's I'll tell you four? what, this, this is one of my favorites. Uh, when, when your sales guys work for the customer, mm. well, okay, everything starts with the order. The customer is always right. Ah, fine, 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 fine. I, I understand all that stuff. But what tends to happen is sales guys are like out there with the customer most of the time. That's kind of where they're supposed to be. They're, they're not hanging out at corporate and, and their allegiance and their feelings and their emotions tilt toward their customers, right? I understand that, but you know why most sales guys won't announce a price increase to a customer? I'll tell you why, because of their buddies. They don't wanna upset their buddies. I don't care what they tell you. They'll tell you, you know, the competition will get business, you know, they'll shop it somewhere else. Don't buy any of that. <clears throat> they, they're friends, right? So what happens is they go out and they play golf with these guys. They go to trade shows with their wives and hang out with these guys for expensive dinners paid for by the company. And so their allegiance is toward the customer for sure. And that's one of the principal reasons why they won't ever, they'll do it if you make them, why they don't want to announce a price increase to customers because they're too close. So you have to be careful not to let them get too close. You have to bring it back in every now and again, make sure that the, you know, you're clear on what you expect from the customers. You need to get out there as a CEO often. So the only connection you have with the market isn't this guy or these guys. You got to make sure you have that. But don't fall into the trap that the customer, you know, the customer is never right. Okay. Let me let me just let me just take that one right now. The customer, your customer, Joe, my customer, they don't want us to make any money at all. If they had their way, we they'd keep lowering our prices and squeezing us and finding 
you know, alternative sources until we went right into the ground. That's what they want. So anybody that believes that the customer is always right, don't ever believe that the customer is the customer. I get that. And you have to listen to the customer. But you know what? It's much, what, what's happening inside is much more, if not as, as important as what's happening in the outside. Okay, fine. Everything starts with the customer. No, it doesn't. Everything starts with having a factory and the capability to produce and, and the cost structure and the, the great people. And all. That's where everything starts. And so this myth of everything starts with the customer is really destructive. Now, I love my customers, right? I love my customers, but I make sure I have a balance between what I need to do inside, what I need to do outside. I don't have this blind. And that's why that's why sales guys, sales guys, if you're not careful, can be the most destructive people in your organization. Because they, they'll the customer will go, hey, I want you to make this. Sales guy will come in, yeah, 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 everybody. I'm going to drag everybody around. I'm going to drag engineering around. I'm going to drag manufacturing. You've got to make this, and you got to make it really cheap. And, and, and they, it's destructive because the whole organization thinks these are the sales guys are like the gods. So we have to do like, you know, what they want. Otherwise, we'll get into trouble. And you have to make sure that you set your expectations with the organization. And sales guys, no more important than the engineering guys and the factory guys and, and the accounting guys. They're important, but no, no more important than the rest of the organization. I had a guy that did that once and he wouldn't stop it. He dragged the whole organization into frenzy and, and cost everywhere and just on a whim. And I kept asking him, like, you got to stop that. You got to stop that. He wouldn't do it. I had to ask him to leave because it was just too, you know, just too destructive for the rest of the company. That's a really great perspective. I don't know if I've really looked at it that way from, from in terms of, you know, getting too close to the customer, or, you know, that mindset, the customer is always right. I always think of it from the perspective where I thought you were going to go with this one was just that idea of when you, when the customer is always right, you become an order taker and you don't really look at what the problem is that they need to solve or bring, you know, bring innovation to the table. You kind of fall into a habit of just, yeah, doing what the client asks and or the customer asks. But I really like your perspective on on that. I hadn't really thought of it from that angle. I agree with you. You know, the tendency is whatever the customer wants you to do, you do. Yeah. There's some things that I want them to go to my competition for. Let them do it. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's too expensive or it's too complicated or what customers will ask you for anything if you'll do anything. You, you can't differentiate yourself. You can't be anything other than a commodity unless you're bringing ideas to the table for them and helping them solve problems that in some cases they don't even realize they have. That's right. So yeah, I like that a lot. Good topic. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Mary, take it away. Yes, so I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Mary Keough. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50 plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations. We meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic, and one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to get better at a manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, 
just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. Oh, and on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where our attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together all week long between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. Well, we're about halfway through our list here of eight silent business killers. Steve, what's number five? Number five is, this is one of my favorites. In fact, excuse me, I think it was the third, maybe the second book I wrote, which was called, I think it was called The Million Dollar Employee, right? And the thought occurred to me after I visited, I don't remember what kind of hotel chain, I don't, I don't name chains anymore because then I get hate mail for, for name and chains. Anyway, my, my family and I, my kids were little, this is a long time ago. Oh, $10 million employee, the name of the book. I walked into this hotel. It was late at night. The kids are cranky. My wife's cranky. Man, it was brand new hotel. Spectacular. Marble, granite, you know, mahogany, warm cookies at the front desk. And it was just, you know, terrific fitness center and all that. And so we got checked in and we went upstairs and it was kind of late and I couldn't get anybody to answer room service, right? Okay, fine. So I get in the elevator. I'm the CEO dad, right? I'm going to solve this problem. So I get in the elevator, start going downstairs to find the restaurant. Sure enough, as luck would have it, I ran into the, the employee that delivers the food, the restaurant employee, right? She's in the, in, the, in the elevator with me. And I said, wow. I said, am I glad I ran into you? And she goes, I don't know why. Okay, well, you know, what I'm kind of hoping is I could, you know, get no fat chance of that. They, the management's cut back on everything and we don't have time to do anything. And, and I'm thinking, wow, holy moly, this, this girl hates me. I mean, I never met me. She hates me, right? Okay, fine. I know I'm not going to get anywhere that night. And I, so I go upstairs. So, so I've met a toxic employee. I've met the $10 million employee of that hotel, right? But in a negative way. And I'm right then and there, I'm beside, I'm never coming back to this hotel again. So, so this hotel, Joe spent $10 million to build that place. If they spent a dime in this one toxic employee, because how many people did she touch that night or that week or that month? People will never come back. So I'll go upstairs. Uh, now I got to face my family. I got to go, you know, the CEO dad isn't such a cool CEO. I couldn't get anything done. Right. Okay, fine. So <clears throat> my wife pulls out the hide a bed couch for my kids to sleep. No pillows, no sheets, and no blankets. Now it's 11 o'clock at night, right? So I got to call the front desk. How many times have you called the front desk to get something done and they either don't answer or they tell you they'll fix it and they don't? All the time, right? Okay, fine. But I did it. I called the front desk and he said, I will take care of that for you very quickly. Yeah, sure you will, right? About four minutes later, the front desk guy himself was at my door with a big smile on his face and an apology all over hell with the pillows and the blankets and a bunch of warm cookies for the kids. And so that employee wow. saved that $10 million investment that night. And so that's that's my point of, you know, if you have toxic employees, I can guarantee you I don't have them. But a lot of organizations have toxic employees and they don't do anything about it. Well, because legal says you can, or human resources says you can't, or he's been around a long time for the million of these excuses. And, and the, the one I hate is when someone tells me, well, I didn't know I had toxic employees. That's nonsense. 
somebody knows if you have toxic employees somebody knows the supervisor knows a co-worker knows you're just not pay, paying attention so i urge ceos all the time toxic employees can destroy your business before you even know it so get rid of them i agree wholeheartedly i've seen it before and i'm, I'm sure i'll see it again and, yeah. and it's, yeah. you got to deal with it the longer it lingers the, the worse it gets and the more damage you cause not only yeah. with your customers who are experiencing them but among your team and the impact they're having on on others in the that's a good point because they infect other people so their attitudes to attitudes turn sour and people look at them and go well you're not working at that hard why the hell should i Yep. You got it. You just got to deal with them. And I, I'm asked all the time, well, how do you rehabilitate a toxic employee? You don't. Mm -hmm. I've tried it a million times. Once they get that bad, they're so infected. You just can't turn them around. You just got to ask them to leave. Yeah, that's true. All right, Steve, on to number six of the silent business killers. Well, when you believe, you know, so you got a factory, you, you got a factory, a lot of manufacturers have a factory and chances are you got a guy running it, been running it forever, knows it like the back of his hand, you know, tweaks little improvements here and there, gets the shipments out on time, everything's fine. And yeah, costs are kind of going up a little bit every year. Well, that's, you know, and, and he'll tell you, well, hey boss, there's no getting around that. Everything goes up. You know, inflation, material costs, labor costs, all that stuff, blah, 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 blah. I've heard it a million times before. If you buy into the argument that it, it, it has to go up and you can't do anything about it, and you're not working on reducing it every single day of the year, then you're 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 buying into a false argument. <clears throat> I can, let me tell you something. I have my productivity per employee is measured by operating income per employee is extraordinarily high like $105,000 of profit per year per employee. Now, they, you know, your average garden variety manufacturer doesn't touch that. They, they might be 20 if they're lucky. And uh, part of the reason that is, is because we're so extraordinarily productive. We spend CapEx to help people be productive. We hire only the best. We train them. We mentor them. We support them and so forth. And when I took over the company, that number was like 10,000. And so we've been working on this for years and years. And I tell my, of course, I got a terrific guy who runs the factory. He's not like what I just described. But when I first got there, I said, guys, we had like three times the employees that we have now with 20% of the profit. And I said, guys, we have to work on this factory situation. And the factory, good, good factory guy will say, well, still sales guys raise the price. Oh, yeah, that, that's easy enough, you know. So the convenient answer is to raise the price. But if your factory costs not only are not under control, but you're reducing them every single year, then you're you're making a big mistake and you're leaving a big part of the equation out. The equation is, okay, you know, you got to have low factory expense. You got to have high margins. You got to have high prices. You got to have overhead that's low. All of that, you know, uh, company CEOs tend to only deal with one or two parts of that equation. They're actually four or five parts and factory costs is one of them. So you got to make sure that you're working on that along with everything else. Because if you ignore it, when it gets to be a crisis, it's too late. You don't have any time because your customers are now taking the business somewhere else, you know, because the pricing is better. And so don't wait for it to get to be a, a gorilla before you start dealing with it. But that's what most companies do. Well, what's number seven, Steve, on this list of silent business killers? 
You know, I, I don't, you know, when I wrote this originally 20 years ago, it was, I think, a bigger deal than it is today. A lot of smaller manufacturers tend to want to stay in, they don't want to do business outside of the United States because it's scary and it's complicated and it's it's not easy to develop. All of those things are true. But the, the other side of the equation is in general, depending on what your product is, first of all, your margins are better outside of the United States generally than they are here. And that is because you're typically dealing with, not always, but you're typically dealing with customers that, are, that don't have as much purchasing parity as they do in the United States. I mean, the purchasing guys in the United States, boy, they got, you know, they got power over you because they can move the stuff anywhere. And uh, they, they always remind you of that. You get into some of these other countries, especially less developed countries, they don't have that. They, in fact, they don't even have that kind of awareness. They don't really know your pricing is way too high. <laughs> so you can get away with better pricing structure than you can in the United States. And the other part of operating outside of the United States is you, you diversify your risk, your country, you diversify your country risk, you diversify your customer risk. But, but almost as importantly, Joe, is especially if you do some business in China, which I do, you start to see things that you won't normally see, problems and competitors that are going to come after you, but you never knew they existed. So when you operate in other countries, you're going to kind of get an early warning system of, of upcoming competitors. Now, it's complicated. You have to understand the country you're doing business with. It takes time to develop, and I've done all that over the years. And and if if you're not careful, it's expensive. I mean, you don't, you don't want to hire a bunch of sales guys and send them over to China or whatever. You want to use agents when you can that work on commission. And that's another story. It's kind of tough to find them and control them. And one of the reasons people are hesitating to do business in other countries is because they think they're unstable. And, and they, they I don't know if they can do anything they want to me. Well, I got news for you guys. The United States is pretty unstable too. And if we learn anything in the last two or three years, they can do anything they want to you too. So it's no riskier in the broader context to get outside of the United States and, and develop your international presence. I do about 20% of my business outside of the United States. And, and that's a significant amount for a smaller company. Yeah, I think it's still very relevant. So I'm glad you still went into it. Well, your your original article was titled Seven Silent Business Killers, but you told me there's I actually would add one more to the list right now. And, and so what, what's number eight? Well, I'll tell you what, I haven't found, a, I haven't had enough thought, thought to come up with a really catchy line, marketing line, and I will. Yeah. But basically, the most dangerous silent business killer is your health care expense. Mm. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> health care expenses in the United States generally go up about 10% a year. And, and I don't care what you're paying for it right now. Multiply that by 10% every year, right? And at some point in time, it becomes an unsustainable expense. Okay, so when you're spending a lot of money on healthcare, you're not spending as much money on R&D, marketing, and so forth. And so, you know, you don't want to spend any more on healthcare than you have to. Okay, so what happens when your health, if you just, many CEOs turn a blind eye. Blind eye. I used to. Until about four years ago, you know, my CFO would come in to me and say, yep, going to be 8% higher on healthcare premiums. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't like it, but it is what it is, right? And then one day I said, you know, and I'm on the board of a healthcare system too, so I have some inside baseball. I said, that's going to be unsustainable in 10 years, so let's start working on reducing it or mm -hmm. containing it. 
And right now, so if we had kept on that path, we'd be so much more in jeopardy than we are. And, and now after about four years, our healthcare expenses are about half of what they were four years ago, completely reversing that trend. Now, the key is, right? So, so let's say, assume you don't do anything, your healthcare expense becomes unsustainable. Then what do you do? Then you either cost shift to employees, right? Which won't go well for you, especially in a tight labor market, or you, you don't offer it at all which won't go well for you if you're in a tight labor market, right? Right. So ways, it's beyond the scope of, of our, our talk today. There are no ways to restructure the plans where you can contain cost and you can provide the same level of benefit to employees and you can do one key thing. Most employees, because of the way others have played mom and dad with healthcare expenses, they don't really pay that much attention to what it costs. Mm. And they don't pay that much attention to what they do about what it costs. And so we spend a lot of time and a lot of money educating our employees so they understand what the costs are, and we structure our plans so they go to the least cost but most effective healthcare situation. The, to give an example, the most costly and least effective is in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. That's the most costly place and least effective, right? So what we do is we say, tell you what, we structure our plan so... Anything you do, do generic drugs, you know, primary care, this, that, you won't pay a dime. No deductible, no copay, no nothing. But if you go into the emergency room, you're going to pay $250 deductible. So we structure our plans to, to steer employees in the right direction. Again, it has to be effective healthcare, but it's all, it can also be in a place where it's least cost. And that, that number eight, Joe, will kill every single business in America if it keeps going the, the way it's going. Uh, that's really interesting. And I, I like your perspective on it too, because, you know, I, I don't know if, I, if I'm if i even that educated on different ways to structure things and, and what's even possible. So well, you got to get some help. You got to get yeah. some professional help. That's what, we did. Yep. Yep. that's what we did. Yeah, that's good. But it can be done and it can be done effectively and, and people are kind of okay with it. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. Well, Steve, we, we cranked out eight really really great topics here in just about 40 minutes. I think there's a lot, a lot of value you created here for the audience and appreciate you doing this. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to share with our audience before we put a wrap on it? Yeah, there's only one thing I want to say, you know, a lot, I get a lot of podcasters ask me to go over the seven silent. That's fine. What I tell CEOs, CEOs like nice checklists, you know, mm -hmm. I yeah. do this, I'm fine. I do that. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, and, and you need to do all seven of them, all eight of them, and, and be mindful of. But leadership is a little more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. I mean, checklists are a great place to start, and it's a great thing to have when you're an airline pilot. But when you're actually leading a business, you know, yeah, do the checklist, but don't rely only on the checklist. Mm. Yeah. Well, Steve, this was really great conversation. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I appreciate you doing this. How can our audience learn more about you and all your books and everything interesting that you're doing as well as about your business, Miller Ingenuity? I think that, the, and you'll put it in the show notes, I suppose, MillerIngenuity.com is the, is the best place and that links to everything else that I do. Perfect. Well, Steve, once again, thanks for doing this. Fantastic. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. 
To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.